Welcome back to the Saving Delaware History Podcast, Episode 3, sponsored by the Division for Historical and Cultural Affairs. I'm your host, Madeline Messer, and today we'll be talking with lead interpreter of the Johnson Victrola Museum, Christopher Hall. This museum is dedicated to the Victor Talking Machine Company and its founder, Eldridge Johnson. Johnson is responsible for many of the crucial developments in audio recording, especially music production, and was awarded a posthumous Grammy in 1984. So what are the most notable aspects of the Johnson Victrola Museum? I would say the most noticeable aspects of uh, our museum is that uh, we actually probably have one of the largest collections of antique record players. Um, we ha- are also the only museum dedicated to the Victor Talking Machine Company, its founder, Eldridge Johnson, and um, Victor Records and Victor Music. And on a household level, what did that look like? One of the big technological changes that happens post-29 is Victor's machines were run off of a spring motor. So it was something that had to be wound up before it was played. The motor would wind down, and then you'd have to wind it back up in order to play it. By the late 20s, there was already a shift towards putting more electric motors in. And when RCA takes over, because radios required electricity anyway, they switched everything over to electric, so this kind of classic Victrola look of the spring motor, the hand crank, and an internal horn get replaced with an internal motor, uh, an electrical cord sticking out, and an electric speaker with a volume knob instead of a horn. So the products had started changing. They started experimenting more with kind of how everything was laid out. And did that shift coincide with the orthophonic shift of recording, where music stopped being recorded through a horn and started being recorded into a microphone? Although we may not have definite proof to bring that, I think it did. Orthophonic recording is a huge jump in overall quality. The horn itself still had its limitations, and really all this is happening in about the late 20s when more parts of the country start having access to electricity. Now, Victor had tried to stay firm in the idea of spring power for the most part. Um, The idea being was it would open it to more homes, but predominantly speaking, you were talking about machines that would have sold more in metropolitan and urban areas because that was where people had more money. So you had wealthier populations with money there having access to electricity, so there was more of a desire on their part for electric-powered machines, especially radio really ends up becoming more of a dominant thing at this time orthophonic recording becomes a way of trying to kind of get a market back that was leaving them. So it was more just the demand of what seemed more like a practical way of playing things. Would you say that the Victrola machines were really a luxury good, or you know, was there a chance that a lower middle class family could have one of these? So primarily they would have been seen as a luxury thing, um, just from the standpoint of Unlike a lot of technological innovations in the late 19th, very early 20th century that were aimed at, you know, eliminating household work, this was something designed around the concept of lounging and enjoying yourself. And if you were in the lower, especially in the lower class in America, you were predominantly probably either working uh, agriculturally, so you're talking about long days, you're working in factories where you had a 12 to 14 hour work day, so just the idea of who it would have been marketed to, it was marketed at people who would have leisurely time. Now that said, Victor, although their machines were expensive, 
did have financing available to try to expand their marketplace a little more so that those with lower incomes, especially what you would see in a more middle-class bracket, would have access to being able to pay off their machine over time instead of dropping what could be about a quarter to their entire yearly income on a single machine. But relatively, if you look at uh, adjustments for inflation, these were predominantly expensive machines. The records themselves were not cheap, but they did try some things to kind of widen who could buy them. And was that sort of a principle of his company, that it needed to be accessible? Um. Not sure if I would say it was a principle of it. It was more they kind of understood who the market for these would be. Now, that said, they were also advertised as a status symbol. So it was the idea of maybe you don't have as much money, you can use financing, but you can kind of buy a higher status in society by purchasing one of these machines. Because really, there was always a novelty to them, even when they became a more legitimate business, because if you had this in your home, you were the talk of your, your neighborhood. So it was able to kind of buy a little more social status, a little more clout, uh, because you would be the more popular, talked-about person in your neighborhood. So they were largely advertised that way. They weren't advertised as a luxury good for the wealthy. It was a, you can get yourself a little more closely closer to feeling like a wealthy person because you would have this machine in your home. Kind of seems like Troll Museum was a social avenue to bringing your friends in to listen to music or hosting a dance or something like that rather than an, a status symbol. Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of a way of, you know, making yourself a little more popular. Right. Could you provide some biographical information on the co-founder of the Victor Talking Machine Company? Absolutely. So Eldridge Johnson was born um, just outside of Wilmington, Delaware, um, moved to Dover at a young age, and was even taught in a, uh, a boys' academy that later became the, the site of Wesley College in Dover. Uh, unfortunately, he wasn't the best student. He really didn't like rote memorization or just kind of writing down facts and memorizing them. He was more interested in how things work, so we wanted to take things apart, figure out how all that worked, put it back together. His studies, unfortunately, suffered for that, and he was told that he was too dumb for college by one of his professors and encouraged to go learn a trade. So he moved up to Philadelphia, became an apprentice in a machine shop there, uh, lasted about a year before he became unhappy with the pay he was receiving, moving over to Camden, New Jersey, working in a machine shop there for some time before actually going out to Washington State to work in electrical power grids in kind of the early days of cities becoming electrified. Did that for a year, came back to Camden, and ended up taking over the machine shop he had worked in, and that would become the location for where he would end up working with the gramophone company, uh, vastly improving their machines, automating them, improving the process of recording, manufacturing for them. What qualified him to take over the company after he had been working as one of the employees? So uh, there were two partners. Um, Johnson had actually amassed enough money to be able to buy out his other partner. So And Johnson was more interested in kind of the different ways that business could be utilized than I think the person he was working with was. So primarily they were doing wire stitching for book binding, but Johnson was also finding ways of using kind of his technical abilities to do kind of like odd repairs and improvements to 
people's machines, so they would come in with things like sewing machines and we'd find ways to improve them for people. And made a pretty good living uh, being able to do that and just amassed enough money. Well, so he was much more technically oriented, uh, probably a technical genius, than he was uh, school smart. Absolutely. So what specifically about his life and his career does the museum commemorate? So... Basically, his whole life story that um, someone who was told that they probably didn't have a bright future was able to kind of work their way up for a while, and then through, you know, some luck of eventually Gramophone sent the right person to his shop because he had built up a reputation for kind of being bold and experimental with what he was doing and was then able to form his own company, which became the most successful record company in at least the United States, if not the world, from 1901 until 1929, and had built up this legacy of running a company associated with quality, uh, with music people wanted to hear. So he, he was able to go from being told that, you know, you're too dumb for college to being a highly successful and respected businessman. So if he was nationally, internationally renowned for this, and he worked in Camden, New Jersey, why is the museum located in Delaware? So... Um, the reason the museum's in Delaware was his son, back in the 60s, felt that people had forgotten Johnson. And although he was a successful businessman, because he didn't name the company after himself, instead calling it Victor, most people did not know who Eldridge Reeves Johnson was even at the time. And to some degree, that was actually the way Johnson preferred it. He didn't want his name really put on things. He wanted his company to be known, not necessarily him. But his son, Fenimore Johnson, um, knowing that he was from Delaware, had gotten up with an organization called Delaware State Museums, which is now Historical and Cultural Affairs, who runs the site. He wanted a museum to commemorate that life because he felt that such an important figure had been forgotten. So what were, would you say were some of his most lasting impacts on the music industry? I would actually go so far to say that he helped completely legitimize sound recording. So prior to him, you had big-name inventors like uh, uh, Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell, who had highlighted these machines as one of their great inventions before moving on to something else. They weren't interested in really developing a catalog of music for sale, making this seem like an appealing thing for a large population. Johnson, on the other hand, was running a company that was a record company. So all they produced were record players and records themselves. So he got this into people's homes. He got them to take it seriously, whereas others had kind of shown it as either a technological innovation or kind of a novelty that you would go see at an, an exhibit or maybe a very wealthy person would have in their homes to play with their friends. Johnson made this something that people wanted to have in their lives. And because of that success, even the other companies that had kind of written this off early on started taking it more seriously, started actively competing, trying to find a way to edge Victor out of the market, and laid the foundations for a recorded music industry that thrived and continues to thrive. What was it that you think Johnson saw in the music recording industry that nobody else saw? What created that vision of having music in every home? I think it was, to some degree, one, that Victor was the first company to get famous artists to start recording for them whereas others had lesser-known artists singing fairly standard songs that most people were already familiar with. Johnson's company went out there to get who, whoever the big-name acts were at the time. Victor wanted them signed. 
So most people don't, didn't have access to go to, say, an Enrico Caruso concert, because an Enrico Caruso concert would be an ex- expensive opera performance in a major city. This was a way of opening up music to more people. Yes, we're still talking about expensive machines, and so you're talking about a wealthier population being able to own them, but it was still a way of opening up music to more people than what had been available at the time. Realizing that by expanding that audience, you get more people to buy your stuff. So it was just that constant push. And part of it was also that Johnson had surrounded himself with highly bold, risk-taking individuals who often would go out of their way to kind of act on something that they thought would be successful, and that became a motivator for Johnson and for Victor to have to essentially make the money back that they spent on a risk. So it was kind of all these people working either behind the scenes or together to take some risks, spend some money, and then work towards making that money back. And it kept them going, you know, a pretty long time. Could you go back to the second? You said they spent a lot of money on a risk. Yeah. What happened there? Well, there were risks throughout the whole... Uh, this is still an early period in time. So uh, one of the biggest risks was pretty much advertising. So Victor was spending large amounts of money on ads. And it's kind of funny to think of that now as a risky thing because we're inundated with advertising all the time now. But prior to really Victor, ads were done by companies that weren't always the most reputable. So they were usually selling a shady product or they were just simple write-ups to get some word of mouth going. But the idea of having to advertise usually made people think that you were desperate for business. Victor changed that whole mindset by spending large sums on full-page color ads and magazines and newspapers right around the country to get more people aware of it. And even beyond just the advertising, the idea of going out paying a large sum of money to an artist who may or may not really be interested in recording to get them to do a limited number of songs to then promote that artist as a Victor recording artist was risky at the time. Um, Johnson took risks on releasing the first commercially released jazz record in an era where other companies had backed away even after making the recordings themselves. So Victor would kind of go out there, try something new, and see how it would go. Could you name a few of the artists that he worked with? Because to my understanding, they're quite the household name. So you have people like Enrico Caruso, who was Victor's first famous artist. You have, I'm trying to remember their names off the top of my head, uh, Rosa Ponzel, Luisa Tetrazzini, and Nellie Melba being probably the biggest female opera singers at the time. Then you have them working with people like Fats Waller, the original Dixieland Jazz Band, a lot of the early and influential jazz musicians. And even later on, so even after Johnson retired, Victor kept going with that. They kind of get the edge on everyone with uh, country music, with people like Jimmy Rogers, the Carter family being the first ones to go out there, find them, and record them, and get those acts signed to them, and then you know get those into people's homes. So... Also, you were talking about uh, his use of marketing and how innovative he was in that. Could you talk about the use of the image of Nipper the dog and how that became kind of an iconic symbol? Yes. So the story of uh, Nipper the dog is pretty interesting, actually. So Nipper was a real dog. He was a mixed terrier owned by a British painter named Francis Barad. Now, Francis Barad was a pretty um, run-of-the-mill painter living in England. He didn't have a lot of commercial success. He had some artwork of his exhibited. 
But he, he had Nipper the Dog and a early record player that actually used a cylinder record instead of the flat record that, you know, pretty much everyone's familiar with now. So he noticed that whenever he played a recording, Nipper would look into the horn with this very confused look, trying to figure out where the sound was coming from. So he painted it up one day. Now, he didn't really do anything with it at first. He filed a copyright with it, but that was about it. And then it was shortly after that, a couple of years, that he first tried to pitch this image to the phonograph company in England as a possible trademark. They rejected it, um, and one of his friends suggested that he use, instead of the cylinder machine that was kind of outdated and looked more like a scientific instrument, that he use a Berliner gramophone instead. They said it was more appealing. So he went to the gramophone office in England trying to borrow a machine. Of course, they ask why, and when he shows them this image that he had painted up in his plant, they actually buy the rights from right there with the provision that he do this trademark. So it first becomes the gramophone trademark in about 1900. Um, and because Johnson had worked with uh, gramophone, making their motors and kind of working on the internal machinery, when he starts Victor, he actually starts using the image off and on for about four years, so or three years, from 1901 until 1904. And he works out an agreement with gramophone so that they sold in different territories because even though they weren't the same company, they worked closely together. So Gramophone put the image on their machines and their records. Victor put it on theirs, and they just didn't sell in each other's territory. So it kind of got this weird legacy as being a uh, one trademark used for two companies. But the the image actually probably becomes more famous than Victor itself. RCA gets it when they buy Victor in 1929. It becomes their trademark really until they kind of fall apart in the 1990s and they would use it off and on. But it just became synonymous with this idea of quality, whether it was Gramophone, Victor, or even RCA, that when you saw this image of Nipper looking into the horn, that that meant you were buying a quality product. So could you explain the oddity there between two companies sharing the same marketing and expecting it to stand for quality despite someone else using it? So so the thing about Victor and Gramophone, Victor was born out of the American Gramophone Company uh, being bankrupted by lawsuits. Johnson essentially took the remnants. He also gathered a lot of Gramophone employees who had really good ideas or a lot of ambition to build up Victor in the early days. So Victor Talking Machines, the first products they came out with, were essentially gramophones under a new name. In fact, that's why Victor ends up in a lot of the same lawsuits as gramophone. But Johnson made so many changes and improvements to what they were doing that they were able to win theirs. So the companies were kind of the same thing, just in different territories. In fact, uh, by 1920, Victor had uh, some level of stock control and had members of the board meeting in England and Gramophone, and even members of the Gramophone board were sitting on the Victor board. So they were more like, they were different companies, but they worked very closely together. And because they were making similar products, because there was a lot of exchange of ideas there, there was a pretty similar view of how both companies operate. That level of quality was seen with both of them. It's a complicated thing. We're still trying to get up with, I think it's EMI in England that has a lot of that. EMI is born out of a merger between Gramophone and Columbia. 
they have the original painting itself. They have a lot of the archival records, so we're trying to get more information on that because it is a very confusing thing trying to figure out how two companies could use the same imagery without confusing anybody. It certainly has confused us. And the lawsuits you mentioned, were they antagonists in those lawsuits, or were both companies being sued by a third party? The thing to keep in mind about this time period is lawsuits were flying around from everybody. Although you had patents on machines, recording processes, and even what records were being made of in terms of the actual materials, because it was so new, there wasn't a lot of um, fundamental understanding about how much of something someone could own. So you could have a patent on something called a record player, but you can't have a monopoly, so then there was always the room for companies to kind of squeeze their way in. Now, with Gramophone, unfortunately, they had just outright violated people's patents. They had violated distribution agreements because of disagreements that they had with people running other companies. So they, I wouldn't say they were necessarily the aggressor. It was that they were trying to find wiggle room in patent laws to be able to exist, which was the state of the early 20th century. You had companies even outside of the music industry really suing each other over everything because people wanted market dominance. And with Victor, because they had taken on the remnants, those competitors that had gone after Gramophone were still trying to shut out other competition, so Victor just became that newest thing to go after. Victor themselves even have to file lawsuits because of what they think was encroachment on their market with uh, companies like Columbia using similar processes to them. It was a, a kind of a legal nightmare at the time. And what did eventually become of his company? Did it merge with another? Victor uh, merged or was bought out. Uh, but essentially, RCA, the Record Corporation of America, acquires Victor in 1929. RCA had been a partner for a few years incorporating uh, their record player or their radios into Victor machines, so kind of giving you the entertainment center of the time. So RCA buys it. The company changes their name to RCA Victor on a public front. Behind the scenes, they were trying to really just merge everything into the RCA umbrella. So unfortunately, largely, Victor stops existing in 1929, and most product names stop bearing the name Victor by about the mid-40s. All right, then my last question is, what other stories are relevant to the Johnson Petroleum Museum? As of now, one of the things we have been working on is researching more about how Victor kind of fits into American history and trying to bridge what American society was like with how Victor operated. Because not only did Victor help shape American culture, especially musically, that becomes reflecting you know, social mores, cultural shifts, but also, Victor would be shaped by that as well. Of If there was a uh, desire for a certain type of music, if people were moving from, and we, you even see this especially in the teens and 20s, the shift away from opera being what people wanted to listen to, to other forms of music, how Victor would react. So we are researching more avenues. We're trying to find more areas of interest to hopefully attract wider audiences to come in and show that, Although it seems odd to have this little museum in Dover that we are part of a larger story of both how music has changed over a century or more and how, you know, we kind of fit into that story of American culture as it's developed throughout the 20th century.
Wonderful. Well, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, and I'm sure at least I'm interested in hearing about what comes of that research and especially what you're learning with England about how to encourage anyone else who enjoyed this episode to go down to Dover and check out the Johnson Victoria Museum. I'm sure Mr. Hall would be happy to talk with you in person. I would. Thank you for uh, having me on your podcast. Thank you. That concludes this episode of the Saving Delaware History Podcast. Thanks for listening.